1: You're listening to the History Today podcast. In this episode, Charlotte Crow talks to Onyeka about his article in the July issue of the magazine concerning African gentlemen in Georgian England. You, you start your article referencing a claim by two historians who say that the African presence in, in Britain in the Georgian era could be akin to the number of Africans uh, in the UK today. Now that, that sort of a claim is going to surprise a lot of people, but clearly it points to an invisibility of the African presence in Britain historically. And I'd like you to tell us a little bit about how those sorts of how we, how we can be sure or how we can have a greater idea of, of the of the evidence and presence of Africans in, in Britain yes. in the 18th century. Yes.
0: Hitherto, um, we have thought or been uh, the way it's been approached to us through. Historians like E.P. Thompson and others, is that the um, 18th century was a period in which there wasn't much racial diversity present within the British Isles. However, research, um, recent research, for the last sort of 40 or 50 years, has uncovered and uh, revealed an African presence in parish records um, throughout the 18th century, from the beginning until the 18th. And this 18th century African presence is to be found throughout the British Isles, from Edinburgh all the way down south to Dover. And uh, these Africans are to be found in cities, villages and towns throughout the British Isles. They include people like John Edmund Stone in Edinburgh, the taxidermist who taught um, Charles Darwin uh, his taxidermy when he was a young man. They include um, Caesar Picton from Thames Ditton, um, the entrepreneur and coal merchant. Uh, they include people from uh, Blackpool and uh, they include the um, uh, circus proprietor, Pablo <laughs> Fanique uh, and uh, his traveling circus. Um, so they include a range of, of different um, Africans and a range of different um, uh, professions up and down the country from as far north as Edinburgh and as far south as Dover and as far west as the Cornish um, Peninsula.
1: And what about ordinary people whose whose names might not have been sort of recorded for posterity, i.e. taxidermist of Darwin?
0: Yes, um, there are Africans to be found inside the Merchant Navy and the Royal Navy. Africans participated throughout the Georgian period in the Napoleonic Wars on the British side. There were Africans present on um, HMS um, uh, victory uh, at the Battle of Trafalgar. Um, and they are to be displayed and portrayed um, on the... Um, picture of Daniel MacLeese showing um, Nelson being uh, killed at the Battle of Trafalgar they also an image of an African gunner on the plinth of Trafalgar Square um, also showing Lord Nelson's death so Africans will be found inside the Merchant Navy inside the British Army people like George Rose
1: so, so in view of this very um lucid uh, range of people that you've just described, um, you charge in your current article uh, people like E.P. Thompson with helping to build, a, and other historians, and not just E.P. Thompson, but uh, to build a distorted view of, 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 the, of the African presence, uh, not, not so much in terms of invisibility, but in terms of Africans uh, as victims, as inferior.
0: I mean, in some ways we're indebted to E.P. Thompson because some of his social historical work is very much important in terms of our understanding of the 18th century. And even people um, such as uh, um, the author of Staying Power, Peter Fryer, uh, his work on uh, Africans or black people uh, throughout the British Isles also is a very important text. However, hitherto, the idea has been that Africans had a very servile or low status. This is perhaps a reflection or a reality based upon a concept based upon the notion that Britain in the 18th century had become the largest, if not the largest, uh, slave trading nation in the world. And as the British Empire was only rivaled by France and perhaps the Ottoman Empire uh, in terms of the outreach of its slave trading enterprises, so that external to the British Isles, Britain was enslaving more people probably than anybody else. So the obvious conclusion or theory that runs from that is that any Africans that were then present in Britain, whilst Britain was enslaving people elsewhere, must have had a servile status comparable to what Africans had in the British colonies. But in fact, that is not true. The status of people varied, even within the colonies, but certainly within the British Isles. Even though there were laws um, within the empire which sort of, in a roundabout way, justified the commerce and trade that made African servile, inside British society, no such laws could be enforced in those same ways. If we know anything about slavery, we know that it was enforced through violence mm-hmm. and through custom. And that violence couldn't be justified inside British courts. It wasn't just the matter of the famous case of Somerset, um, which said, you know, that, recounting from Cartwright in 1569 that England was too pure in air for a slave to breathe. It's not just that notion um, that was present in there, but also about custom and tradition. Most Africans inside the 18th century were integrated and assimilated within British society.
1: Right. Well, let let me stop you at that point, because that brings us on to this article that you've written for the July issue. Um, And you've called it Black Equestrians. And it's about a particular group of assimilated Africans, if you can call them a group, because they are all very individual. But a lot of people might not understand exactly what you mean when you use the term equestrian. And I'd like you to explain that term a little bit, please, so that we can talk about the individuals that you mentioned. In
0: the 18th century, um, many Englishmen, looking back um, like Pope and others, looking back at the culture and traditions of um, Rome and ancient Greece, Looked to identify a mode, a way, a fashion uh, of being. And they looked to ancient Rome and they looked to ancient Greece to do it. And inside ancient Rome, there was a class of people called equestrians. And this equestrian class um, and the patrician class that came through the equestrian class um, governed and functioned in terms of a middle class and an upper class within Roman society. Really from the beginning of the founding of Rome in the 8th century all the way up to its demise. So adopting what they thought were the mores of this class, the right through the writings of Cicero and the writings of Caesar and the writings of um, uh, various other Roman authors, they created a notion within modern britain that they wanted to emulate the equestrian style and they began to call themselves equestrians or the new greeks began to dress in togas like greeks or ancient romans and they began to read and write and um and uh speak in latin we're talking about the augustan Augustan era the augustan era and and part of the justification of the british empire was the emulation in fact that it was the descendant of this ancient roman um empire and so the adopting of the equestrian values was even in its most truncated form because obviously this is a translation of those values and it's a a
1: cultural it's a cultural one it's a
0: cultural translation it's a fashion one it's a mores one it's an adopting of what they think are the equestrian mores what they think are the equestrian ideals or how they are interpreting those equestrian ideals
1: And and those ideals linked very much to the idea of being a Georgian gentleman, a gentle person.
0: A a gentleman. And a gentleman not necessarily gentle in the sense of how we would think of being gentle, but being a gentleman in the sense of being a gentleman. And being an 18th century gentleman, might we might consider now to be rather coarse and walkish and, and, and obtuse. But they actually feel that that was also part of an equestrian ideal. So this equestrian ideal was a generic term that encompassed many different values. Because even within the equestrian order, there was a pseudo kind of equestrian, a pseudo-epicureanism. This pseudo-epicureanism was extravagant. Um, was was extreme um, people would engage in um, uh, orgies they would engage in um, eating to excess and vomiting to excess and many 18th century Englishmen seeing that in ancient Greek and Roman texts began to adopt those similar values there was other equestrians also part of the pseudo-equestrian philosophy who believed in in, in violent behavior uh, and um, a kind of aggressive kind of honor um, where they would fight duels and kill one another based upon honour and many. Um People in Georgian England also adopting those values also took on the same mode and way of behaving, especially in relation to women and the way in which they treated women and people that they considered of a lower class.
1: Okay, so it's a sort of a a cultural identity that that we can recognise from our understanding of of the Georgian era. But now you've got to tell us something about the characters that inhabit your your article. And let's start with Julius Soubise.
0: Julius is someone who um, we don't know too much factual. evidence about him so 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 we know that he was um of jamaican descent and we know that he was um came from or through saint Kitts, and we know that he was a cabin boy on board a ship little else do we know about his background for firm in any firm way um some people say that his mother or his father uh, were white but we do not know this for sure what we do know is that when um adopted inside british society He achieved a position uh, based upon his skills, abilities and adopting these same values which he himself was reading about. And we also know that in some ways, some people in Georgian society regarded him as being uppity and of getting ideas beyond his station. Uh, And that is why um, he was sometimes referred to as the Mungo Macaroni. The Mungo being the character uh, from The Padlock um, uh, by um, George, George or John Dibden. John Dibden, the padlock of the 18th century and the macaroni being a reference to the um, idea of this ostentatious, flamboyant uh, European man who's exceeded the boundaries of fashion. So he was the archetypal Mungo macaroni and he was a popular and fashionable figure long before Beau Brummel in 18th century society and in many ways emulated many of the values and customs that were coming from France.
1: You're also talking about a very different type of equestrian when you talk about Subiz's friend Ignatius Sancho, mm. um, who may, people might know, have heard of more, yes. more frequently. Yes. Um, how, how is Sancho different and other than in yes. his equestrianism yes. from
0: Subiz? Yes. Ignatius um, uh, Sancho, in many ways, is in the question more like a of, a, a more quiet um, uh, intellectual, um, quietly spoken. Uh, family man uh, who seems to have spent the latter part of his years um, in a very pedestrian sedentary way with his family while eating and drinking rather (laughs) too much to excess uh, and therefore suffering from the gentleman's disease of gout and then uh, once um, uh, in his more senior years um, becoming a shop um, keeper and owner and quietly um, through the letters that he wrote to people like Lawrence Stern and others, beginning to influence public opinion against slavery in a very English, quiet, sophisticated manner. But nevertheless, having a strong abhorrence for it, but in a very gentlemanly way, um, going about challenging that abhorrent um, practice. Um, Ignatius Sancho is a very interesting individual because in many ways he emulates the very concepts that we're talking about. He is an African and refers to himself as such. And yet he is also extremely English in the way in which he thinks of the world. And his viewpoint is as a middle stroke, upper class gentleman. For example, in 1780, during the Gordon riots. He's
1: quite conservative, isn't he? He is quite Gordon, conservative, Gordon with riots. a small C.
0: Yes. Because he yes. also he also has another aspect to his being. Yes. Um, the, the, the conservative with a small C, in the sense. Because when he sees these Gordon riots happening, he doesn't feel... Inclined to rush out onto the street and join them. No, he's actually offended by the behaviour and considers it raucous and uh, 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 ungentlemanly and and is to a certain extent abhorred by the activities. But nevertheless, feels sympathy and hopes, he says, that it will rain and if it rains and they'll be taken home and they won't be hurt or damaged and they won't damage or hurt anybody else. But also, in a certain sense, there is a liberal strain that runs through his ideological philosophy. And we can see this being exercised quietly in the people that he decides to vote for during the general election of the same year, in which he votes for radicals, inverted commas, and liberals, in inverted commas, not the conservative with a large C, but conservative with a small C. Yes.
1: Yes. Um, We ought to just point out that that, uh, the activists like Aquano, who who are... fighting you know for abolition and mm. and, and, and uh, you, you, those, those people you've chosen to sort of leave out of the equestrian yes. debate for now haven't yes. you yes
0: that, that's because i feel so many people have written so much about them yes. um, that that i thought it more appropriate to talk about those people who are not so well known including julius including perhaps Ignatius and certainly the third person. Well,
1: George Augustus Bridgetower, who died in Peckham in 1860, aged 82, left an estate of £1,000. Now, he's the final person that you go yes. into great detail about in your yes. piece. Yes. Tell us a little bit about how he came to leave £1,000. Yes. You know, he died in the Victorian era, Indeed. so he's sort of post-Georgian in a sense. Yes.
0: I mean, the thing about um, uh, George Augustus' polygreen Bridgetower is that he, he's coming from, uh, he spans two Um, time spans. He's both within the Georgian and within the Victorian era Um, and really his story is the story of at least two or three gentlemen um, of the Georgian period. The first one being his father who escapes um, uh, bondage in the Caribbean and then moves his way around Europe um, becoming at first a servant to the crown princes of various eastern European countries and then Making himself uh, welcome uh, and servant to various other dignitaries and nobles throughout Europe, and then finding his way through France to this country. And when in this country, his skill, both within Greek, Latin, and as a gentleman, um, are well noted. But most of all, is his skill as a musician. And he's already teaching his children, um, both of his children um, being his sons, being born to a mother from Poland. And these Children who he has educated and taught not only the language of music but the language of a gentleman. These gentlemen, in some ways, outstretch him, especially the youngest son, George Augustus Polygreen bridge Bridgetower, and this youngest son becomes a child protege. Um, he, he is um, he is the most adept and skillful musician, uh, and the most one of the and and respected um, not only in this country but throughout Europe. Um, his his concerts are sell out um, and his um and his um his skill as a musician is noted by royalty and he's employed by George III in in um in his um uh, orchestra and then subsequently and and continuously employed by George III for the next few decades
1: well, it's fascinating. Thank you very much. Just finally, uh, this week the film Bell is released and, and you mm. do mention Dido Elizabeth Bell in the article but yeah. the article isn't really focusing yes. on African female experience. But what's your? can I just ask you quickly what your view is of films such as Bell and how they might help us reshape our understanding of the 18th century experience?
0: Mm. I think films are wonderful things if they help to inspire us to think of a time period in a different way or reignite our understanding of history. I don't think we can ever um, put to one side anything that stimulates our understanding of history, because as you keep saying, and as you say today, what happens then is very important to what happens now. But my equivocation is this. Having been brought up, you know, throughout the 80s, 70s, 80s and early 90s, on a certain kind of production that presents an image of Britain in the absence of any racial ethnic diversity and many people seeing those sorts of images will therefore concur that britain didn't have diversity and that diversity is a question of modernity where all the problems are so this film attempts to place dido elizabeth Lindsay bell in in that milieu however um not to, to detract away from the film What is important is that what we need is a film that speaks about the diversity of that period in a more generic sense.
1: Less exceptionalism. Yeah,
0: less exception, rather than us just showing Ben as the only one. In fact, what we need to do is show that there were others like her. And in fact, communities, part of the British society, and that these were part of what made Georgian Britain Georgian.
1: Thank you very much, Onyeka.
0: code program.